This podcast episode is sponsored by 7investing. That's right. We are partnering up with 7investing to learn more about the latest innovation and developing trends in the investing world. We were so privileged to invite the founder and CEO of 7investing, Simon Erickson, to share with us the foundation of 7investing's investment principles and have him talk to us about investing in stocks for the future. I personally love how their mission is to empower you to invest in your future and to think like a long-term investor. So as a listener, you get to enjoy $25 US off on the first month of 7investing's monthly membership or annual membership, which you will have access to receive their start recommendations and lead advisor updates by simply entering keyword Goliath as the discount code. Now, back to the podcast episode. You are now listening to Me and the Market Goliath podcast. Welcome to another episode of Me and the Market Goliath podcast. I'm your host, Kelvin. It's been a while since we released a new episode as the show took a slight pause. But before we start and introduce our special guest today, can I say it's such a crazy time to be alive right now with Netflix losing 68% of its value year to date? Google down about 20% year-to-date, NVIDIA down 41.2% to date. But on the bright side, we're so excited to resume the show by inviting Leandro, who is the main contributor at Best Anchor Stocks on Seeking Alpha, to come talk to us about the stock market. I follow Leandro on Twitter, and he has a growing follower base of over 18,000 followers. And that's how I really got to know him. And I enjoyed reading his writing since then. Incredible to have him here in front of me right now to share his views on the stock market. It's so great to have you, Leandro, to have you join me across the world. I know you're based in Europe, and we'll be discussing the macro and micro view on the stock market with the recent sell-offs as inflation ran wild the past couple of months and the Fed raising rates. So without further ado, it's great to have another long-term investor here. So I'm sure my audience is keen to hear about your investing background, Leandro. Before we start, how did you come across Twitter and and Seeking Alpha as a platform to share your investment ideas? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Kelvin. It's a pleasure to to be here. Well, I was a Twitter user long before I started my current Twitter account. I think I started this account about a a year and and a half ago. But I was a user, but not a contributor to Twitter. I just basically used it to read others' opinions. And then I decided to start the account sharing like famous investment quotes. That's like why the handle is invest quotes. But then I started giving like my opinion on several things. And then I started sharing stock research that I was doing because I was already doing it for my portfolio. So I, I thought I might as well share it because it's like, I don't care. If you share your stuff online, it's actually better because you get people who have an, an opposing view and you can understand what you've done wrong or, or where your thesis may break. So I started like that. And then after being on Twitter, I discovered Seeking Alpha. I discovered it because on Twitter, there's a lot of people that were contributing to Seeking Alpha. And I actually didn't start writing, but then I came across Chris, who is from Growth to Value on Twitter, that he has a service in Seeking Alpha. And I, at that time, I started a Substack and I was writing articles. So Chris was reading them and he asked me to contribute to his marketplace. And that's actually how I started on Seeking Alpha. But I started on Seeking Alpha through Substack. I I liked a lot Substack too, but I had a professional opportunity to contribute to Seeking Alpha and I decided to to take it. That's an incredible journey. And you've come so far in terms of being able to contribute to the trade community, especially and something that you're really passionate about talking, especially on companies that you cover. Going into the meat of the podcast, what does investing mean to you? And how would you describe and frame your investment philosophy? Well, right now, investing to me means like everything because I actually like work full time on it. But before working full time on investing, actually investing was a way of getting away from my full time job and really enjoying what I did. Because when I was in university, I studied economics, but what I really wanted to do was get to manage a company or to own a company because I had that sense of, of ownership. And of course, in investing, you can own companies, but without needing to own just one, you can own a, 
a collection of companies. So I think that's what attracted me to investing. I think investing is not, not how we do it because we do it on the secondary market, but it's basically giving people who run businesses, you give money and then with your money, they run the business. It's not exactly how it works when you're in the secondary market because you're not giving money directly to the company. But yeah, I like that because I think many people have a negative view on investing, but they forget that without investing, most of the companies wouldn't be here because through investing, capital gets allocated technically to the best ideas. That's not entirely true always, of course, but if they get an opportunity to start a business with no investing, we wouldn't have actually technological development because the companies wouldn't have the, the capital to start. My investment philosophy, I think it's buy and hold, but I wouldn't consider it buy and never sell. Because obviously when you invest, you invest with a thesis in mind and this thesis may change for X or Y reason, but it may end up changing. So I would say it's more a buy and constantly verify, but I never try to time the market. I, I, I never say, oh, look, look at this company now, the interest rates are going to go high. So I think the company instead of 100 is going to go, well, the stock is going to go to, to 80. So I'll wait. I understand one might want to do that, but I consider myself a terrible market timer. So I don't try to go into that game. I've come to understand that you invested in the stock markets at quite an early age. How many years have you been investing in the stock markets? Well, I, I started investing in the stock market when I was like 18. Maybe in the US, it's not so young, but... I live in Spain and in Spain, really nobody knows anything about the stock market. The stock market is only on the news when it's down 30%. So people think it's really, really risky. And for example, in the US, everyone has money invested or their parents to a 401k or whatever. Here in Spain, it's not like that. For example, I have trouble understanding that it's true for the US that if you bring the stock market down, you can actually affect the level of inflation because a lot of people have money in the stock market and you're taking that money away. If you do that in Spain and you bring the stock market down, I think everyone has exactly the same amount of, of money because it's in the bank account. But I started at 18 with index funds because I started reading about investing. I started reading Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, and you always read the thing that if you don't know anything, just read on an index fund and don't look at it. And as I read more about investing, I actually found it more difficult. <laughs> Because even if more, you actually think it's more difficult to, to do. I started with index funds because it was the first way of going into the market without it being too risky. And then I continued reading and then I jumped into individual stocks. But the index funds have always been a large part of my portfolio. Like, I don't know, right now, I think it's 25, 30%. I think you have to do like an appropriate portfolio management strategy that fits you. For example, I'm young. I don't need to do a 30% yearly return to have a handsome return over the long term because I have a lot of years in front of me, I hope. Has your investment style changed over the years? Well, I, I think it, it hasn't. I haven't incorporated, obviously, growth stocks in my portfolio, but I calculated it the other day, actually. I think 70% of my portfolio is in either index funds or stocks that are more, well, not, nothing is safe right now, but that are more resilient, so to say. And then I have the growth stocks. That's why I don't really understand when you're down on a growth stock and people pick on you like, oh, you lost, I don't know, 60%. And I'm like, yeah, but this is like a very tiny part of my portfolio, obviously, like, I, I know the risk of holding growth stocks, especially in, in this environment. But if you, if how to manage your portfolio, like how to build it, I don't think it's really a risk. And I have a lot of years to, to hold stocks. Uh, I would understand that if someone is towards the end of his investing career and he has growth stocks and he is now 80% down, how he would be worried because then I don't know if recovering those losses in a short period is possible. Maybe it is. Uh, I don't have an idea. People don't think that will highs in growth stocks for the next 10, 15 years. Well, if you would have said that in 2020 in the COVID crash, they would have probably said the same. And now they went three times higher. 
that's a very logical, as you mentioned, it really depends on, on where you are in life and, and just zooming out and the urgency of when you need the, the cash. I think that's the important consideration. You, you mentioned about investing in index funds. There's that compounding effect if you dollar cost average. I'm curious, you know, I know you're very passionate about studying and investing in individual stocks as well. Do you see any contrasting risks with dollar cost averaging ETFs versus individual stocks? I think dollar cost averaging index funds is probably the safest strategy. First, because you are never going to run out of money like you would if you were buying the dip, because you can buy the dip many times and run out of liquidity. If you dollar cost average, actually, you're always going to have money. And I think it's a, a strategy that makes a ton of sense for someone who receives a recurring income. Like if you have a full-time job and you get paid every month, I can see how it makes sense putting that money every month into the stock market. An index fund, you basically, so to say, can't get it wrong because it's a collection of 500 companies and they rotate. If companies disappear, then they go out of the index and another company will replace it. You actually can dollar cost average an individual stock and it can go to zero. I think that dollar cost averaging makes sense if you do it over a basket of stocks. Like you can have a basket of 15, 20 companies and just dollar cost average those companies. And I think it's also a great strategy because as you are putting money every month or every two weeks or every week into your stocks, if the thesis breaks, you just have to stop the contributions and that's it. If you lump sum a stock that is doing poorly, then you're risking all of, you, of that money from the start. If I do like a cost average and something goes wrong, I simply stop contributing. And if, it's, and if the thesis is completely broken, then I, I sell and that's it. So I think you can do it, but DCAing just one stock is very, very risky. I'm aware that you invest around 15, 20 companies, primarily covering tech or disruptive tech companies. Has your view on tech changed given the recent drawdowns? Obviously, recent earning reports of some of these tech companies have proved, quote unquote, rosier than they are. And we're seeing this with Amazon, Shopify, Netflix, Teladoc as examples. Mm -hmm. Do you find it harder to sleep at night holding these stocks, tech stocks, compared to last year for say, I think a lot of has changed over the past couple of months. So curious to get your thoughts on that. I would say that actually, if you held tech growth one year ago, that was the moment to be a bit worried when you went to sleep because valuations, obviously, it's really easy to say in hindsight, but there was clearly like valuations were very stretched. I think now it's probably the best moment to have those stocks because the risk has been completely reduced. Like there, most of them are back even below levels of pre-COVID. Some are reaching the, the multiples they had in the COVID crash. So I think that the risk has been greatly reduced. And, and I see a lot of people that are now rotating out of these stocks. And I think that's actually how you don't make money in the stock market because the moment to rotate was when, I don't know, our price to sales was 20 times. Like this is very easy saying it now. Maybe the multiples could have stayed up there and we wouldn't be talking about this. But now that multiples have significantly contracted, I think holding tech growth is less riskier now than it was one year ago. I don't think these companies are going anywhere. If, if we have the federal funds rate at three or 5%, if you hold a company that has a fairly acceptable balance sheet, like if you have a highly in-depth company with a variable with all the debt in variable interest rate, then there might be trouble ahead, especially if it's not producing cash flow. So my view is that if there's a time to hold those kinds of companies, it will be now because I think it's clearly the, the industry that has been most punished with, with inflation and the expectations of high interest rates in one or two years. I think that's a very interesting thought. I think that's quite contrasting to a lot of what a bear analyst would say. One of the opposing concerns that I have with growth stocks is the total addressable market. I think a lot of recent earnings report or announcements, there's a slight concern in terms of the outlook because of increased competition, the expected outlook on reduced total addressable market. That's the legitimate concern, given that the last couple of months, we've seen a lot of these tech stocks saying that they can maintain their growth, but in actual fact, they, they were not able to, to maintain some of the growth last quarter. 
You've mentioned the return on invested capital in some of your articles. I think that's a very interesting topic to to cover, which is increased competition is definitely going to affect a company's return on invested capital because it's going to be very attractive if, let's say, there's a massive total adjustment market to to tap into. What are your your thoughts on some of these concerns that I would say would be quite logical? Well, I think that. The first thing we have to have in mind is that the market is always forward-looking. So if everyone believes that tech stocks are going to do poorly in the next year or two, probably that's sort of starting to be baked into the market because nobody is going to stand there like saying, oh, this is going to go bad without selling it. So people sell it because they think it's going to go bad. And then the stocks are down at 60%. And they say, okay, probably maybe they don't move in one year. But if you are putting, like we said, if you are accumulating, then that's the perfect scenario for you because you're going to have a company that's still performing and you're going to have a flat stock price to which you can put more money. I would say the the concerns are, are obviously legit, but I think that there's too much focus on the comps. Like people say like, oh, look, the, the gro- growth is, is slowing down. Well, Obviously, you cannot say growth is slowing down by looking at one quarter. You can say growth is slowing down when you have a three-year view and you can see what growth has done. There's a, a famous chart about Amazon's quarterly growth, and it's really very volatile. If you're going against 60% growth last year, well, obviously, don't expect it to coast an 80% growth. Growth doesn't accelerate forever. For me, it's more important to see, to zoom out a bit and see how growth is evolving. So if, if one company says, in the next five years, I think I'm capable of doing a 30% compound annual growth rate. And last year they did a 50% and this year they post 20%. Well, actually calculate it and see that it's not so far off to what they told you. Maybe it's less than the 30%, but that's not the important thing. So I think right now I put more focus into durable growth than high growth. So I much prefer a company whose growth rates are somewhat more predictable and they are adequate. I don't need a 50% growth per year. I prefer a 10, 15% growth per year that is sustainable over the long term. I think also these companies are, you find them, the bad thing is that when they have predictable cash flows and they're very resilient, the market tends to put a premium on them. So they are more expensive, so to say, because you can project more years out without like uncertainty. I think you can find in companies that are growing 50%, then they go to 10%, then they post another 50%. The mispricing probably is higher because the analysts would have one opinion, but you can have a completely different one. You mentioned return on invested capital. I think probably that's one of the most important metrics for any company joined with free cash flow per share. But I also think that free cash flow is a bit controversial because a lot of companies are free cash flow positive, but have a massive amount of share-based compensation. I think if you focus on those two metrics and what sustains them, because those two metrics only grow if a company has a competitive advantage. If it doesn't, those two metrics will actually decrease, especially return on invested capital will return towards an average and it will stay there. And actually it wouldn't be an outstanding company. It's just another company in that industry. That leads to a perfect segue in terms of what you do and and what you cover on a daily basis, covering anchoring stocks. So what does anchor stocks? I'm sure a lot of my audience would be keen to know, I mean, you cover growth stocks, but you're covering growth stocks with low volatility. I mean, volatility is subjective right now, given that growth Mm. stocks has been quite volatile the past couple of months, but I'm curious to know and deep dive into what it means. So we started, when I say we, like Chris and, and myself, we started Best Anchor Stocks because like in hindsight, it's very easy to say, oh, look, if you have held Amazon since 1997, you'd be a millionaire now. Okay. But in that journey, Amazon suffered large, large declines. And I think probably many people during those declines sold these stocks. Obviously, nobody wants to be 90% down. So Best Tanker Stocks was born because we thought that there are two things that you need to enjoy worthwhile returns. One is obviously buying high quality companies. Well, there are three things actually, buying high quality companies and not massively overpaying, obviously. Those are two. And then the third one is also being able to hold these stocks for a long time. And if you have a portfolio that is going up and down 20, 30% every year, 
I think that holding that portfolio for the long term is really difficult. So we decided to come up with a group of stocks that would, so to say, facilitate like long-term holding. So you could have a percent of your portfolio in these stocks and then another percent in growth stocks. So then even if growth stocks were moving up or down, your portfolio actually was quite anchored that the name comes from actually an anchor in, in a ship that when there are a lot of waves, if you have an anchor, well, your ship is going to stay where it is. The boat is not going to move. That was the idea. So if you look at your overall portfolio, even if growth stocks are moving a lot, your overall portfolio is not. So you probably would say, okay, I'm, I'm fine with this. And then you are going to hold those growth stocks for a long time. And at the same time, you hold these anchors that have less volatility, but also have quite a bit of potential ahead of them. So you're not like forfeiting returns just for the sake of anchoring your portfolio, because for that reason, you could just like hold cash or hold bonds. But it's like trying to get the, the best of both worlds. So the best of index funds that they are not very volatile and the best of growth stocks that they have still got runways ahead. Obviously, anchor stocks are more volatile than an index fund, but typically less volatile than growth stocks. They are not obviously immune to market sell-offs, like everything is selling off now. The NASDAQ is, well, up to before yesterday was like 30% of highs. So obviously those moments are going to come, but in the index, you don't have a 30% drawdown every year. And in a growth stock, you probably have a 30% drawdown every year, which doesn't mean that it's a poor investment. It's just that year, maybe there was new information coming in the market and the market viewed it differently or whatever. The next leading question would be, where do you usually start picking growth stocks with less volatility, given that there's just so much uncertainty right now with the global markets, referencing macro uncertainty, the pandemic here in Asia is still happening and across the world and rising interest rates, inflation, and inflation has dropped down last month compared to March. If we zoom out, obviously you don't want to make any assumptions here, but there seems to be more headwinds ahead than tailwinds. So where do you usually start? Well, in best anchor stocks, we actually look for like one of the characteristics of any anchor stocks is resiliency. This resilience comes from the business model and the fact that these companies are not very affected by market cycles or, well, economic cycles would be a better description. So we are not looking for cyclical companies like, obviously, anchor stocks, if now we have a recession, they'll probably be affected. Every like macro affects the earnings of almost every company. But we are looking for companies that even if that happens, they'll even come out stronger than their competition from the economic crisis. We also look for companies in, in this environment that are not very affected by inflation so that they have mm, pricing power. But I think this is something that you have to look for, even if there's no recession or inflation coming. You always want to have a company with pricing power because if they cannot grow on volume, they have to grow on price. And you always need a company that has that growth lever. And also we look for companies that are not very affected by rising interest rates. So highly in-depth companies, you can have like a company that has a fair amount of debt, but you really have to look for those companies that have debt, like fixed rate debt. If you have variable rate debt, then it's quite dangerous in what we're coming. We don't know where the interest rate would be in one or two years. And I think nobody knows, even if everyone is trying to predict it. So we look for that. We have one, one example that I think it's widely known that it's in the best anchor stock portfolio, that is Constellation Software. Actually, Constellation Software has been it's suffering one of the, I think it's the third or the second largest drawdown in its history. Constellation Software is going to be benefited from all the macro environment that is unwinding now. Like they have companies with software companies with pricing power. So if there's inflation, they'll probably just raise pricing along them. And, and their software is like mission critical for its customers. So the churn is typically low because if you don't use this software, you basically can't operate. And then something that's very important is that Constellation has never relied a lot on leverage to do its acquisitions, but their competition has. Like they take in a lot of debt to make acquisitions. 
So in a rising interest rate environment, well, Constellation comes out stronger because probably some of these competitors will, will go out of business because the rates are going up. They can do the acquisition. And also with all the valuations coming down in software, especially, Constellation gets to acquire cheaper companies, which over the long term is much better. So I, I think that everything is getting sold off now, regardless of its salience against an economic downturn. And I think that's pretty, I'm not going to say easy, but it opens up a lot of opportunities for us because you don't have to worry a lot about valuation. Obviously, we do worry about valuation, but it would be much more difficult to try to find these companies in January or in December or November last year because valuations were that high that like they didn't meet your expectations because you do a I don't know, a reverse discounted cash flow. And you see that something was baked in that was pretty impossible to, to meet. But now that's not the case. Like with everything down 40, 50%, I think we're, we're talking about established companies here. Like there are companies, 200 billion companies that are down 40, 50% from high. So I think now the valuations are much more reasonable and it allows you to focus much more on the business than, than on the price. That's a great segue into what I'm about to ask next, which is the quality of a company. Being able to pinpoint quality of a company, also referencing your writing on portfolio strategy and analyzing individual companies, what makes quality undervalued. You've mentioned investors using a discounted cash flow model. By now, a lot of my audience would know there are some limitations with using a discounted cash flow model, but it's quite fitting right now, given that using a discounted cash flow model gives you some sort of margin of safety during uncertain times. But it's interesting to sort of pick some of the takeaways from your writing is that high quality companies will almost appear overvalued with this method of calculation. So how do we mitigate this flaw of using a DCF model just in case in the next six months, the economy suddenly becomes a lot better than what we're experiencing right now. And we lose out just by selling too early based on what a DCF model is telling us. Yeah, but I think that the main limitation is that you basically change one variable 1% and then the whole price changes. So I don't think how, how you could say, okay, I think revenue this year will grow 17% and then the next year it will grow 13%. I think that's really difficult to estimate. And also it depends a lot of what you give. Probably most of the valuation, well, probably no, this is for sure. Most of the valuation goes on the terminal value because they are like, that goes to technically infinity. So instead of a 2% terminal rate, you use a 3% terminal rate and everything changes completely. So I think that's too big of a limitation to actually rely on a discounted cash flow model. I think the, the other limitation is that companies that are very durable, typically discounted cash flows, well, I think like the most used ones are two types. One is the one step that you do like five years and you just basically estimate the next five years and then assume a terminal rate. And then the other one is like doing five years, then 10 years, another five years until you get to 10 and then a terminal rate. I think both have limitations, obviously more the one that has only five years of estimates, because if you say that this company is going to grow the next five years at 15% compounded annual growth rate, uh, it's free cash flow. And then in the fifth year, you bring it down to two or 3% because you can actually fool yourself if you put a terminal rate of 5%, because that means that probably that company is going to grow faster than the economy. And in the future, that company would be bigger than the global GDP, which makes no sense. So I think that's fine for companies that are not durable, but if you get a really durable company, then it's actually useless because that company probably in the fifth year is going to grow much better than a 3% rate. So who would have thought, for example, Google or like there are lots of companies or even Constellation Software would have grown at 10, 15% for 15 years or 20 years. No DCF can predict that. So probably all these companies 10 years ago appeared massively overvalued. But actually what the market was saying is giving a premium because these companies are actually durable. I prefer to do a discounted cash flow model, but a reverse one. Like I get the current price 
I see what the discounted cash flow bakes into that price. Like, okay, to get to this price, the market is assuming that the next five years, you're growing at this rate. From year five to year 10, you're going at this rate, and then this terminal rate and this discount rate. And then with those assumptions, I can say, okay, do I think this is reasonable? Do I think that the company can beat this? And if the answer is yes, then I think that's uh, a pretty good margin of safety. My margin of safety is very conservative. If I think if in the reverse discounted cash flow model, it assumes a 10% growth uh, in free cash flow for the next five, 10 years. And I think that the company can do easily a 15. Well, that 5% is my margin of safety because actually I think that 15% would be conservative. And that's how, how I do it. I think quality will always appear overvalued in a DCF because you never take into account durability and probably it's the most important thing for long-term return. Going back to a high-quality company, something that I've read from your article is that it really consists of being well-financed and being resilient through turbulent economic cycle and also be a, a compounding machine. I also think there's a kicker to it. You, you've also mentioned the article is a high quality management team. So just to drill on that, would, would you say if, if a company is well-financed and resilient and being able to compound, that's equivalent to a high quality management team? What is the, the byproduct or what are the ingredients in order to have that high quality management team? Well, I think it depends because if, if a company is well-financed and is resilient because Obviously, there are industries that are more resilient than others, but also inside that industry, there are companies that are more resilient than others. For example, if you take Adobe as an example, during the 2008 global financial crisis, Adobe suffered quite a bit, like revenue came down, but they had a product-based model. And since then, it's when the current CEO who, who started in 2007 is Shantanu Narayan. He started shifting the company towards a subscription-based model, which actually is much more resilient because during an economic downturn, because people cannot just simply cancel, they are paying in monthly installments or on installments or whatever, and they're getting constant updates. So for example, in that case, he's actually and his management team are responsible for the resilience of the company because they shifted that model towards a more resilient model. And they're also obviously responsible for how well financed the company is because they have been for 15 years running the company. So what, what you see in the balance sheet is like a mirror of what they think, like how the company should be run. I would say that being well financed and resilient can be an indication of a high quality management team. But then you also have to be careful because if the CEO has changed recently, and you see that the balance sheet is well-financed and that the company is resilient, that is not necessarily an indication of a high-quality management team because the management team just arrived. So you don't know what, actually how that balance sheet will look in 10 years' time. Maybe they take more leverage and, and maybe they start shifting the business model. So I think you can definitely say that if the company, if the current management team has been working for a long time in the company, but it's a bit tricky to say that if the management team is, is new. Quite interesting to see how analysts out there or researchers view a company's management team. I think it's quite difficult, quite tricky to be able to evaluate the quality of the management team. And it has been, right? Because if you combine it with a discounted cash flow, like it doesn't take into that consideration. So I want to go to a more interesting part of this podcast is sort of your participation in investing competitions. I know you participate and actively involved in the stock market pitching game. I'm not sure how many people have heard of it. I'm not sure if it's popular here over here in Asia. By the way, congratulations on winning the first round with your pitch on Adyen. It looks like a fun and interactive game. I think it creates a platform where people can share ideas and there's a lot to learn from hosting a game like this, where people get to pitch their investment ideas and you get to vote on the winning investment pitch. So can you tell me more about this experience and share some of the learnings from, from this competition? I think this competition is great. It's actually sponsored by Common Stock, which is like another investing platform similar to Twitter. But I would say that right now it's even a bit better because... People are not going crazy and, and you can actually share your portfolio and everything. 
this game is great from the point of view of the audience because if you go as a listener, you get to hear learn about six companies in the space of one hour. Obviously, it's not too detailed because pitches have to be maximum of three minutes long, but you get a good introduction and maybe you see something that interests you. It's a starting point to, to start to know more about the company. But I also think it's really interesting when being a speaker, because when I always prepare like the, the pitches for, for the game, it's really hard putting an investment like thesis in three minutes. The first thing I think is, look, I'm going to put only the important things. I put only the important things. Then I read it out and I look at my stopwatch and it's in like eight minutes. And I'm like, well, I have to do like three times less. So I think it really helps you understand what's really important about the thesis and what's not, because what's not really important is going to be left out and what's really important is going to be in the three-minute pitch. So it helps you with that. And also I think it helps you because it's so hard to put a lot of hours on, of research into three minutes that it really makes you understand the company better. And you need to know a company very, very well to be able to put like all the information in three minutes. So I think it's a good process also for the, the speakers. I, I would recommend everyone trying to put all the investment thesis of the companies in their portfolio into a three-minute speech and they'll see how difficult it is. And they learn a lot about what's really important about the thesis and what's not really important about the thesis. I'm sure you get a lot of feedback with regards to the company that you pit. Do you find yourself disagreeing with other investors on a specific investment philosophy? That tends to happen, especially in the Twitter community. What are some of the feedback that you get that creates that disagreement or a different way of analyzing a company that you're really interested in? I think the, the most valuable arguments are the one or discussions are the one where you're actually discussing about the quality of a company. Not so much when you're discussing about an investing style. I think there are a lot of people on FinTwit especially try to tell you that their way of investing is better, but at the same time, they never share what they do. So I think that's a bit of uh, yeah, it's a bit of like they're lying. Lots of people say, no, I went out of this stock when it was 200. And now that it's 20, I think it's fairly valued. So I'll go back in. Yeah, okay, show me your trades. And then we'll see how effective the strategy is. I love Pinterest or Common Stock for the discussions on fundamentals of any company. I think you can learn a lot from the bear case that another user might have. I don't think it's that useful to discuss about an investing style because... I'm not going to market time, even if someone is telling me that market timing is the way to go, because I, I don't know, I, I have also read a lot uh, about investing. My job is actually reading. <laughs> I like to learn about companies. I read a lot of hours every day. So I've read a lot and I don't think that someone can come and tell me, no, you can sell here at the top and they buy at the bottom. Yeah, fine. But that's not actually my style and I will never make that my style. So. I think there's a lot of friction with that. The discussions are really, really good to get grasp of a better bear case. I don't actually like when someone is talking continuously, like discussing with me the bull case, because I think everyone knows the bull case of their companies really well, even maybe too well so that they overweigh it. So I prefer someone that has the opposing view and comes and tells me, look, I don't think this company is going to do well because X, Y, or Z. But the truth is that many times you get an argument that I don't think this company is going to do well because look at the stock price. And that's not really useful. The stock price is a given. I don't need to look at the stock price to understand if my company has a, or my thesis has a flow. How do they qualify the voters? That's something really important, right? Because if someone has a different view, you can't judge a company based on stock price. I mean, that should be the requirement. So I'm curious to know, like, how are you able to be able to, to get a vote from these kind of voters? Honestly, I, I never used to block anyone. <laughs> I just like silence. But actually, I'm having quite a bit of fun blocking because I don't like to live in the heads of some people, but I, I actually think that's the way because they always go to your replies. They quote you. They say, oh, look, you said this and now this. Like, hey, man, I don't know. Have a, a nicer life and li live the life that's out there. Don't. I don't know why you have to be thinking about me all the time. 
I think right now you have a lot of people that have made mistakes and they want to blame other people for their mistakes, like buying a company that they didn't believe in the first place. And when it's down 30%, they sell and they say, hey, I, love, I lost money. I'm like, yeah, but you, you shouldn't have bought it because you don't know even what the company does. So I don't know. I think it's difficult. But the good thing about social media is that in two or three years time, I think you'll get to a follower base or actually things like you who you can discuss with. I have several Twitter followers that I have exchanged DMs with them and they have been really harsh with me in some comments, and, but they were actually legit comments about the company. So I never blocked them or silenced them. I actually enjoyed uh, discussing with them. And I have exchanged DMs with them and talking about the companies, what they thought they didn't see, like bull case, how they saw the bird case. And I think those are the followers that you really need to try to cultivate and have. And the people that are out there saying or laughing about other people losing money, that's very useful right now that people are taking victory laps, like saying, and it's very funny because they say, oh, look, this company is down 40%. I told you it was shit. And I'm like, yeah, the NASDAQ is down 30%. Like your bird case has not been proven right if there's a broad market seller. That's how it is. Because the stock is down 50% with the NASDAQ down 30%. It doesn't mean it's a shit company. If that stock is down 50% with the NASDAQ up 20%, then we can start to talk. Maybe it's down 50% for two or three years then I, I can start to say, okay, you have been right. But come on, you cannot be right. The same way that someone who was bullish on some companies that were going up in 2020 or in 2021, 50% per year, that was not obviously a confirmation because I don't know how's the, the quote that says, a rising tide lifts all boats. When the market is going up, even the low quality companies are going up. But when the market goes down, and then recovers after a reset, then the bad companies are not going to go up the same way as the good company. I wish you all the best in the stock market pitching game. Hope you win the competition. I'm sure it's a fun experience and, and you get to learn so much from it and learn how to tailor your pitch. Before we wrap up the episode, this is a question that I ask all my guest speakers is, what is your biggest learning or takeaway or even mistake in stock market investing? I think my biggest mistake, I would have to say Teladoc, <laughs> because I think there were a couple of mistakes there. First, I went into an industry that healthcare, actually, it's difficult to understand it well, especially because it's healthcare in the US. I can understand the healthcare system in Spain perfectly, especially because my parents both are doctors, but in the US, it's somewhat different. So I think that went out of maybe my circle of, of competence. I felt I understood quite well the company, but maybe the industry, I, I was missing on some things. I think I trusted management too much without having a reason to trust them too much. Their performance wa was good, like company-wise, but they had some decisions that I didn't like, like the stock-based compensation from the Livongo deal and everything. I think that could have been handled better, especially with investors, because one thing that amazes me is that in the earnings calls, when you see the questions that analysts ask, they are just stupid things the majority of the time. Like I was listening to the Fiverr earnings call, and Fiverr also has quite a bit of share-based compensation. And analysts, there was not one single question about, hey, when is this going to stop? Do you think it's going to go over the long term? I think that's pretty important to know what the company is worth. But the questions were like, so out of the 500 categories, uh, what are the three categories that performed the best in these three months? And that's such a useless question to ask right now. Like, why do you care? Like, if they have 500 categories, these three months, maybe these categories were better. The next three months, another three would be better. How does that change the value of your of the company? So I, I think that was my my biggest mistake. And also... That has made me learn that you always have to view the fundamentals of a company, thinking that the company might be 50% below where the price is today. Because I think it's very easy to get carried away by the price action. Like when you see, look, the last year has been, the company has returned a 50% to shareholders. And then like all the bull case seems great and there's no bear case. But then if you think 
what would I say if this chart in, instead of 50% uh, annual returns to shareholders would be minus 50? Then that changes your way of, of viewing things. You start to focus much more on quality and less on the narrative. Like the narrative is really good, but I think it's a combination of the narrative, what actually is being translated into the numbers. Like, oh, look, we have a huge TAM. Okay, but you're actually during the last three years, you are not winning market share. So why is that TAM important if you're not going to be able to win it? So I think it's that that made me learn. I think Teladoc is a, is a good company, but obviously management sort of lied because they said during investor day, no, we're going to do a 30% compound annual growth rate. And then margins are going to expand from here. And then one month later, they come out with results. They lower the guidance. They say that they don't know what's going to happen on the long term and margins are going down. Didn't one month ago? Surely you did. So you're basically telling me that you lied. So that's why I actually sold it. And it made me learn that once again, I, I already knew this, but in investing, you need like constant reminders. It's a bit incredible, but that management is the most important part of a, of a thesis. If you can't trust management, it doesn't matter how good the company is, you should not hold it because if, when things turn rough, like when the sea gets rough, like it's turning now, management is going to be responsible for navigating that. It's not the business model. If everything starts to go south, which can happen, and you have a great manager, I can go to bed and be very relaxed because I know he knows what he's doing. If everything goes south and you don't trust the management team, maybe they even make it worse. So I think that's my my biggest learning. For disclosure purposes, I still hold Teladoc. I, I got burned. I guess it's incompetence of management. We talked about this earlier. Is it's so hard to analyze or, or put a score on, on the quality of management because there's so many variables. We're dealing with people here. That's one of the biggest learnings I've learned. The telemedicine or tele industry is quite interesting. I think there's still a sense of it's here to stay, but I've spoken to experts in this industry or covering the telemedicine, telehealth industry. It takes a long time. You need to have a very high patience to be able to hold the telehealth stocks. So that's something that I've learned recently. I'm paying for it, the consequence. I'm still holding on to it, but obviously there's a lot of uncertainty, a sense of distrust during the earnings call. Management team starts to dodge questions. I know your Twitter page started off with famous investment quotes, which ties to your Twitter handle. So personally, I'm very curious to know what is your all-time favorite investing quote that people out there should really you know, reflect or, or remember when they invest? Well, I think one of my favorite quotes is Phil Fisher when he said that the market is full of people that know the price of everything but the value of nothing. I think that's pretty evident now no? that people say, oh, look, now imagine when Cloudflare was at 200, people were saying, oh, it's such a great company. And then when it's at 60, people are saying like, oh, it's a shit company. So you obviously know the price because the price is given by the market, but you don't know what you're holding. You don't know the value of what you're holding because maybe obviously 200 was very expensive, but if it goes down to 30, it's very cheap. Um, but people don't think like that. People think, oh, it's high, then it's doing good. It's slow, then it's doing bad. And, I, and Phil Fisher is one of my, like his book, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, I think is one of my all-time favorite investing books because he invested 50 years ago or so. And he was a growth investor back then, which I don't think was very common. And he actually made a lot of money buying not so cheap stocks, but he thought that had a lot of potential ahead. So I think that's one of my favorite quotes, and it's also very relevant to, the, to what we're living today in the, in the market. What's yours? There's just too many different quotes, but it's really relatable. Warren Buffett says you shouldn't judge a stock based on price. Price is, is what you pay for, value is what you get. So it's very mm -hmm. similar to yours. There's that tendency for people to just look at price. I, I do understand why people look at price, because it ties to how much they're going to be able to invest. And it ties with how much money that they'll have to allocate. I always wanted to do one, one experiment that if I got, for example, 100 pages of business information about Google, for example, about Alphabet, 
and I gave it to um, the best analyst in Wall Street. And I told them, you have this information without looking at the price. They don't know what the price has been for the last year. You have to come up with a value for that business. I'm 100% certain that the discrepancies between prices would be huge. One analyst would come and say, the stock is worth 2,000. Another one would come out and say, the stock is worth 6,000. But then I think that's also a limitation of discounted cash flow models because of the price that the market is giving. So you are like adjusting your estimates so you get something reasonable. Like if you do a DCF for Google and for Alphabet and you get the stock price 10,000 and then you look at the market and you see that it's like 2,600, I don't know what it is right now. You'll say, well, I will have to change my estimates because it's too high. But it's not related. Your estimates, you think it's worth 10,000 and awesome that it's 2,600. But people try to adjust it. So they say, oh, look, I got 2,900. Then that's reasonable. I would actually love to do that, that experiment. They would actually obviously not agree to do it because I think it would uncover some of the, the limitations that they have. There's a lot of biases as well. I think a lot of people have their own biases based on their own experience so that they, they make a general assumption of what's valuable and what's not. If we were to run this experiment, you would see people saying no to valuable companies at a higher price. They would rather buy a cheaper company with a lower price, but, but the quality is just not there. So thank you so much, Leandro, for your time. I know we're pretty much out of time already, but I really appreciate what you shared with me and my audience here across the world. And I'd love my audience to be able to connect with you or at least follow you and read your writing. So how can my listeners find more information about you and maybe your Twitter page? What would be the best way? The best way is Twitter. And I always have my direct messages open. So if anyone wants to talk through them, that's perfectly fine. And then on Seeking Alpha, I write under Best Anchor Stocks. We publish public articles once in a while so if you follow us there like you'll get those public articles and there's also a private marketplace but yeah those are the two ways brilliant i'll include your twitter handle and your seeking alpha page on my spotify show notes so that my audience can find more information about you and lastly for disclosure purposes do you own any socks that were mentioned in this podcast episode I own Constellation and Adobe and Alphabet, and I used to own Teladoc, but not anymore. Great. I'd love to have you on again to talk about growth stocks with low volatility. I'd love to have you again. So take care and we'll keep in touch. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official position of the speakers in this podcast. Any content provided by guest speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to represent or malign any institutions, religion, or group. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not your financial advisors. If you like this podcast or want to find more about us, please subscribe to our Instagram page at mmarketgoliath, and on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We look forward to have you join our next episode. Thank you for listening.